They had him sit right over here, just uh, enough yardage between him and the rest of the people to optimize the acoustics. They laid that instrument into his hand. It had been a while since he'd held one, but the soft, glossy wood feeling like an extension of his arm, it felt good to have it again. And as he looked out on his audience, he thought, this, this is going to be good. But he wanted to kind of take the moment in. So as he looked around, he realized that he could hear the, the soft gurgling of the water in the canal. He could feel the, the warmth, though, though not too warm, of the sunshine filtering through the leaves of the trees. And as he looked out onto the vista of this beautiful city behind him, he remembered another city. And in those memories, very different feelings arise. He once again feels this pit of terrible hunger in his stomach. He smells the nauseating stench of the streets. He look, remembers the look of the fear in each man's eye as they pass him. It was supposed to be a, a wall. They called it their protection, but they really should have called it a tomb. They were never prepared for this. They didn't have enough supplies. It wasn't supposed to last two years. Parents did their best to try and stretch out the supplies, adding dust and dirt into the flour to try to make the bread go a little farther. Kids who normally had fun making little dirt cookies for pretend started to eat them, if only to have something in their bellies. You could see the evidence of it from the skin just kind of hanging off their bones. But those were the lucky ones. The others were a pungent memorial of this tragedy that was occurring because there was nowhere to bury the dead. But that was a, another life in a different time. He breathes in the fresh air. He looks down, he wipes the crumbs off of his mid-morning meal, from his mid-morning meal that are on his lap. And he thinks, my stomach is full, but my heart is empty. Empty like the cradles of too many mothers whose children were killed when the army finally came. He didn't know how many they killed. He doesn't know where it ended, but he knew it started with the king's sons right in front of him. He still recalls in his dreams, nightmares really, every night he hears the wails of these crying women who will not be comforted. They will be forced to, to march all those miles, but their hearts will never mend. Horror had come to Jerusalem. God's people were broken. God's purposes and his plans were unable to be seen because they were veiled by a dark, dark cloud. And he realizes as he sits there that these are the people. These are the people that want him to play. These are the people that want him to sing. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing? 
the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you looking at what is a a beautiful text, a sad text, and a difficult one to understand. And we ask that your spirit would illuminate it would reveal the cruelty, the pain, but also the answers to those tough questions that are found only in Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, please join me at Psalm 137. Our ushers do have Bibles in the back, and if you need one of those, you can raise your hand and they will bring one to you. If you're relatively new to the Bible and you just open it up right in the middle, you will end up in the Psalms, and then they're uh, numerically from 1 all the way up to 150 in order. So that can be helpful for you. We are three weeks into this series called Beyond, where the God who is beyond, who's beyond all imagining, beyond all creation, beyond all of our thoughts and ways, he makes himself known to us. But in the middle of these psalms with mountaintops of praise on either side, there is a deep valley of pain and anger in the middle. You see, Psalm 137 is a psalm born of the anguish of exile, of a people who had experienced the terrors of a brutal siege and watched their city and people destroyed and then were put on display. And the psalm, while it is difficult, it is important for us to have it. It's important for us to read and to understand because as the psalms do, what it does is it puts us in touch with our deepest emotions. So that if you are going through similar pain, you can feel understood. If you know someone who is going through similar pain, you can begin to understand and be sensitive to their struggles. And it's so that God can guide us so that we know what to do with our pain. The questions that arise out of this psalm that it seeks to answer is, how are we to respond to unspeakable cruelty? And with that, what do we do with our pain and our anger? And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, I just want to say, welcome, I'm glad you're here. This will be a great opportunity on a Sunday to to see what we do, to see what we believe, and to listen in. But while you will equally have pain and anger in your life, the answers that are found here in the scriptures, unfortunately, aren't for you. And so, while I hope that you will listen, I hope you will think about, well, without God, what, what would I do with my pain? and my anger? How would I handle cruelty? And I hope that you will hopefully consider what God has to offer you as an answer in Jesus. Because for the Christian, Psalm 137 offers us an emotional guide for the worst of offenses. And the big idea, I think, is, can be summed up as this. Hold on to God, his joy, and his plan. In 587 BC, Jerusalem and God's temple were destroyed And his people were driven 900 miles to the city of Babylon. 
Now, Babylon is a, was famous in the region. It's known for its hanging gardens, its opulence, and its influence. And this is a city that many across the whole world would want to visit. But not so are singers and musicians, for they say this, one through four again. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, to remember Zion isn't to think about the walls and the architecture. In fact, to sing about Zion or Jerusalem wasn't actually limited to just talking about the city or the temple itself. Its meaning went much deeper. It was the symbol of God's people gathered in response to him. And so in that way, it represents the purposes of God as well as the glory of his name. And the songs of Zion are psalms like what we've looked at the past two weeks, Psalm 135, Psalm 136, that sing praises to God for rescuing them from Egypt and for setting them up in a place where his presence would dwell among them. Which means that the sadness of these singers in 137 goes far beyond personal loss. They weep for God's saving plan because they can't see it anymore. The high cost of their nation's sin and the sin of others lead them to weep. And in their weeping, as they pray this, they bring their sadness before God. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus wept too. First for his friend Lazarus, because he succumbed to the brokenness and the pain and was lost in death. But he also wept on his day of entry into Jerusalem that they just sang about. Others were singing in praise, but Jesus weeps over the city because he knew that they would reject his coming. You see, the scriptures give us permission to respond to pain and bitter loss and the effects of sin and death with weeping. You can be sad it's okay, you can cry, you can wail. In fact, it's a necessary part of our emotional life that God has given us in order to deal with the brokenness of our world. But the sorrow that we're to have in Christ and the same sort of sorrow had in our psalmist is one that clings tighter to God in sadness, not pushing him away. On January 2nd, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other American missionaries in Ecuador were killed by a tribe called the Wairani. They were speared to death as they tried to make friendly contact for the goal and purpose of sharing Jesus Christ with them. And their story is known pretty well. But Jim and his wife Elizabeth, who was also a missionary to Ecuador, had only been married for three years. That's three years of dreaming dreams that would never go fulfilled. Three years of, of making plans of what they desired life to be, to look like together and to serve God together that would never unfold. They even had a 10-month-old little girl when her father was murdered. How do you deal with that sort of pain? What does it look like? In an interview, Elizabeth said that she tried to be stern with herself. She tried to kind of lock down her emotions and not let it move her. She even made herself throw out all of his clothes so they wouldn't be reminders. But about six weeks later, she found a pair of his shoes 
And in her words, she said it, it broke her because there was the shape of his feet, as plain as anything. And again, she was lost in her sadness for a time. And throughout the years, because she was well-known, people would often ask her, oh, how did you get rid of your feelings? She says, that's not the answer. She said, I didn't get rid of them. I offered them to God. And I have to offer them again and again and again. So how do we deal with our pain? We hold on to God, even in our weeping. We hold on to God. We can cry, but we cry with hope because we have a God to bring our sadness to because he cares for us. Sometimes our tears cry out to God in the ways that our words cannot, and that's okay. Friends, you have permission to be sad here, and we have opportunities to help you in your grief. We care about it. We have a prayer room that's going on right over here for people to pray for you. We have grief share that's on Thursdays for those who have lost a loved one and are trying to figure out how, what life looks like now. We have growth groups for people to, in normal Christian lives, to be able to share with each other and shoulder those burdens. And we even have free counseling services uh, for those who need it in our counseling center. But ultimately, the purpose is to hold on to God, even in weeping. One of my friends is a total, total musician, whereas I am not. I mean, if he sees any guitar laying around, he will pick it up and start just playing and make up a tune. He is always writing songs and recording songs. I think right now he has four or five CDs of different types of projects that are all mostly completed. And it's just a big thing. For me, on the other hand, it's not a big thing at all. I'm no musician. We even have a piano in our home that I will probably never play. And uh, I hope that my kids are, are smarter than me and they'll get that opportunity. But for me, I am perfectly content with just walking past it each morning, not getting down and tickling those ivory keys. It's just not going to happen. To me, it's, it's a nice decoration. And so I read in the psalm, and it talks about these uh, instruments hanging in the willow trees, and it, it kind of sounds like a decorating idea from uh, HGTV or something. It's, it doesn't mean that much to me. But for a musician, that is a self-sacrificing act of defiance. And he makes it even clearer in verses 5 and 6. He says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. He's stating that if he forgets God's glory and God's purposes and God's people, he would rather his hand, his playing hand, be cursed, be withered up, and not be able to play ever again. If he's not actively concerned with God's name and plans, then he's asking God, paralyze my tongue so that I can't sing anything at all. You see, others, I think, would assume, like with my friend, that music is his greatest joy. But he's saying, no, there is something far greater still, and that is God's glory. To put it another way, God's joy was his joy. And it was worth the cost of everything and anything else. And we see this as well in the life of Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
It was joy that compelled Jesus. It was a joy that was stronger than the cross, that was stronger than the shame, and his part of the plan, of God's plan to rescue and redeem sinners involved him sacrificing himself, paying the ultimate price, taking on our sin and shame and God's wrath, and he says that there was a greater joy to be had in going down that path than in taking another. Something that in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and even prays for us. Joy found in the midst of trials. Joy because God is producing something in us. Joy because in God we have the greatest treasure in all the world. What Psalm 137 and Jesus and the rest of scriptures are all tapping into is the truth that life, even if painful, should mean something. And it can mean something. And in that meaning is not pure obedience, but it's pure joy through that. We need to develop a joy so centrally located in God and his glory and his plan that everything else is secondary. So that if those things, all those other secondary and tertiary things are stripped away, then the one thing you have remains, it will be enough. To cultivate defiant joy is to hold on tightly onto that which no one else can ever take away from you. As fifth century theologian Augustine famously prayed, O Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In 1948, Richard Wormbrand, a Romanian Christian, was on his way on a Sunday walking to church when a black unmarked van pulled up alongside of him and guys jumped out and threw him into the van. It was the Romanian secret police of a communist regime and they arrested him for speaking of Christ as greater than communism. He'd be arrested for eight years. When he'd come out of prison, his son would be 18. And then after a couple years, he'd go back for another five And of that time, he writes this. The tortures and brutality continued without interruption. When I lost consciousness or became too dazed to give the torturers any further hopes of confession, I would return to my cell. There I would lie untended and half dead to regain a little strength so they could work on me again. And yet Richard and other Christian prisoners with him would not relent from their greatest joy. And in it, they found greater joy still. Again, he writes, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. And it was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching, and they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. He goes on to say, In our darkest hours of torture, the Son of Man came to us, making the prison walls shine like diamonds and filling the cells with light. Somewhere far away were the torturers below us in the sphere of the body, but the Spirit rejoices in the Lord, and we would not have given up this joy for that of kingly palaces. It's amazing. So how are we supposed to respond to pain? Hold on to God's joy. And to do that, we have to cultivate this defiant joy. Well, how do we do that? I believe it begins with asking God for that grace. In the same way the psalmist asks for God's help to hold on, we too can ask. We can ask him to help us to love him and to love his ways better than the world in its ways. We can confess to him and repent of these lesser loves and ask him to bind our wandering heart to his. 
And we ask all the while searching for it ourselves, taking steps to know God in his word, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to find his priorities and aim to make them our own. So that by the grace of God, when tragedy strikes or unspeakable cruelty comes, we may not only hold on to God with weeping, but we may hold on to God's joy defiantly. But what about when the crime against us is extreme? What about when the pain is so great? It's not just that it makes us sad, it makes us angry. What about when it's your child that doesn't come home from the school shooting? What about when your spouse is the one who leaves and strips you of everything? What about when it's your partner at work that lies and cheats you out of your position and out of your job? What do you do then? And so we want to look at God's plan. Remember, O Lord, verse 7, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Here we are. It's a difficult passage. It's a frightening part. It's a part that, if we're honest, we're embarrassed that it's in our Bibles. It's a portion of Scripture that some outside the church would point to as, see, there you go. This is proof of a cruel God of the Old Testament that uh, is irreconcilable with the teachings of Jesus, and therefore Christianity as a whole is just unexplainable, unreasonable. Brothers who have given up on caring whether or not God exists, this sort of language just reminds them that even if he does, they don't like him because he just doesn't seem very good. But even as hard as these lines, these final verses are to read, I want you to know that it is good that they are in our Bibles and they still have a role in pointing us in the right direction. I'll give you three reasons why. It's good that it's in there because first, it helps us understand our world. You see, the Bible is intimately aware of the depths of darkness. It doesn't see the world as a fairy tale. It sees it as it really is. It sees, in this case, that Edom, a cousin nation to Israel, rejoiced at their destruction. They saw wickedness happening, and they clapped. It also sees that Babylon not only conquered, but among other detestable acts, they killed children. I know what some of you are thinking. Wait a minute. The, the reason we don't like this, because it sounds like the, the psalmist wants to kill the Babylonian children. That's the problem, Derek. I recognize that. But I want you to look at the line that's right before that. It says, to repay you for what you have done to us. You see, in poetry, it's not about writing out a list of every possible thing that occurred and explaining every detail. Often it's about using the fewest words and the strongest literary devices in order to provide the greatest meaning and the deepest impact. And so one reason for saying the horrible thing that he says, it's to shock us that this horror really happened at Jerusalem. In fact, history tells us that this was common in conquests around that time. Second Kings 25 in the Bible specifically tells us that the king's sons, this was done to him right in front of his face and then they even gouged out his eyes so it'd be the last thing he saw. Babylon did this. 
And we need to remember that because we need to remember that the world is dark. And we can forget that sometimes. We can forget when we go back to our neighborhood and we have pleasant neighbors and the locks on our doors are never really challenged. We can, uh, sometimes the darkness just doesn't seem so dark. Until there's those moments, either from the news or tragedy that affects someone you know, that the world shows itself for what it really is. For me, it was being a juror on a case that was so disgusting with a man that committed acts so reprehensible to his own family that confronted me with the truth. It's not just in the Bible. It's not just on the news. It is all around us. Extreme wickedness is there. And the Bible's not surprised by it. It lives in our real world where people do awful things. So it helps us understand our world. It also helps us understand ourselves. At first, the psalmist is using judicial language as if he was presenting evidence before a judge. But when he gets to the part on Babylon, it changes. It's no longer judicial. It's an outburst. It's an emotional outburst that signals this white-hot, passionate response. Well, why is that good? Because God created us to be moved by such acts of horror. Sadness isn't enough. We also have an innate desire to set things right. It's why when you watch a movie and there's very clearly like bad guys going against the good guy, you don't want the bad things to happen to the good guy. You want them to happen to the people who are doing the bad things. It's why kids, you don't have to teach them to punch someone when they've been punched. They get it. You're trying to teach them the opposite. It's why when someone cuts in line at Disneyland or the DMV, you are ready to go into fisticuffs yourself and scream for someone to notice what's happening over here because we have justice baked into our bones. We know when things aren't fair. And as we read this psalm, we're supposed to feel that emotional outpouring of God's people who experience the horrors firsthand. We're not to be stuck in the malaise of, oh, another bad thing happened, another bad thing happened, so that our soul deadens and is unfeeling. He calls out to you with extreme language so you will feel what they have felt. And rest knowing that God knows not only the facts, but he knows the human experience. Helps us understand our world, helps us understand ourselves. It also helps us understand and submit to God's plan. See, God's plan in the Old Testament was for the people of Israel to be God's representative on earth, to bring God to the nations, to bring the nations to God. God would bless those who respond well to Israel, but there would be punishment for those who brought them harm. Not that it was for Israel to decide how that response happened. God makes it clear over and over again, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so our author then is passionately calling for God to bring full judgment upon the people of Babylon. It's a call for wickedness to get its due, just like in Psalm 1. But in Psalm 1, we don't have a problem with it. It says, well, the way of the wicked will perish. But Psalm 137, it sounds more personal. Why? Because personal pain is woven in from this historical event. Yet ultimately, it's about the same thing. It's about God retaining the honor and the glory of his name by keeping his promises to Israel of blessing and judgment. And the key point is in this, since he understands that, what he is doing is crying out to God for justice, but he's also at the same time submitting it into God's hands. It's a cry that goes up in faith, 
submitting to the fact that God is in control and ultimately God will take care of things in his way. And this is why for centuries, after Babylon's own being conquered, Israel held on to these words and they were still part of their songbook because of this larger picture of a hope in God for justice against all types of oppression. But the question is, do we still pray in the same way? To paraphrase one of the commentators I read, he said that we can't ignore the cries for justice that we read in these Psalms but we can't stand alongside of them either because between them and us stands the cross. And the cross changes how we understand God's plan because according to the scriptures, it wasn't just that Babylon was wicked, it was that all of us are and all of us are deserving of God's righteous wrath. Every one of us has done worse than overthrowing Zion or trampling this people because we have placed ourselves before and above God. But God has held off. He's been patient on giving the punishment we deserve. And instead, he has put forward someone else to take that punishment for us. And Jesus rescues us by becoming the one who was dashed upon the rock of Calvary in our place. He is the one that gives us life in God so that we will not be exiles. The grace of the cross is that we who have been harmed by others now have an additional concern beyond justice we can pray and work toward helping others be reconciled to God and helping others receive the same free gift, even those who have harmed us, which is what Elizabeth Elliot did. In 1958, less than two years after her husband's death, she and another woman whose brother had been killed returned to that tribe to live there, even with her toddler daughter so that they would still receive the message her husband died trying to bring them. That's what Richard Wormbrand did for his torturers is he says, a flower, if you bruise it under your feet, rewards you by giving you its perfume. Likewise, Christians tortured by the communists rewarded their torturers by love. We brought many of our jailers to Christ and we are dominated by one desire to give communists who have made us suffer the best we have, the salvation that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to that cruelty? We hold on to God's plan and we submit to it. When cruelty strikes, we can be sad and we need to retain our defiant joy, but we can also trust that because God is just and will be just, it frees us to spend our efforts to extend his grace through Jesus. And that is part of the great freedom of life found in Jesus Christ. And so if you are here this morning and you have not received that grace, I'd like to extend that offer to you now. Because there is a God who is loving and just, but he will not allow you to reject his offer forever. And yet he has offered you a way out to turn from your own way of doing life with yourself as the king and ruler, and to believe instead in his son, Jesus, that as God, he came to this earth and paid the price in our place by dying on the cross, and that he rose again, and that you will now submit to him as the king for all of your life. I would ask that you would weigh that decision, you would make it carefully, but that you would make it, because all sin will be judged, and only those with faith in Jesus Christ will be spared. Why is Psalm 137 in the Bible? a good question to ask as we're approaching any psalm because it's 
a real world that is dark and full of pain. And while it sounds a lot nicer to pray, God, my hope is in you, it is equally faithful to pray, God, my pain is in you. And even more so to say, God, I rest my anger in your hands. See, God does not despise the pain-filled prayers that come to him in faith. He welcomes you with all that you have experienced and all that you bring. Are you in pain this morning? Are you angry for what others have done against God and against you? Hold on to God. Hold on to his joy. Hold on to his plan and let him carry you beyond despair. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words, your scriptures that you have passed down and given to us. We ask that your spirit would continue to uh, cause them to bounce around in our heads and we would see that you have always been working out a great plan that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ to rescue enemies of you and make them into sons and daughters. And so we pray that as we have tasted that, we will also share that with others. In Christ's name we pray, amen.